0: We're going to start today. We're going to be in Acts 27, but I need a quick little recap of what happened last week because a lot of things have been happening over the last few chapters, and if you're jump, just jumping in, then 27 can seem a little, um, jaunt, uh, a little, a um, little awkward. Um. So last week, Paul finished up his fourth hearing in front of um, a group of leadership. There was the hearing in front of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, there was a hearing in, in front of Felix in Caesarea, there was another hearing in front of Festus in Caesarea, and there was another hearing that we studied last week in front of Herod Agrippa II. And during the third hearing, Paul appealed to Caesar in Rome so that he wouldn't go back to Jerusalem and go through the trial a third time in Jerusalem in a city that he knew they wanted, to, they wanted him dead. He appealed to Rome because the Lord told him that he needed to preach this gospel message in Rome. So he appealed to Rome and that's where he's headed. So today, Acts 27, is the beginning of that trip. He's finally, after two years, uh, starting to make his way towards Rome. So Acts 27 covers the majority of that voyage, but they don't actually get all the way to Rome. That will be next week in Acts 28, uh, which will actually be the, the end of this series. We've been studying the book of Acts since January, and uh, will be done next week when we finish Acts 28. Then we're gonna go into the Psalms of Ascent, which I'm really excited about. It'll be a message series about worship in um, Psalm 120 through 134. But this voyage today that we're going to study, a couple things before we get into it. First, I'd like you to know that Paul is not alone on this voyage. And this is referenced in this. But what you're going to see is that the language has shifted from Paul this, Paul that, to we this and we that. And the reason why that language is gonna shift is because Paul is not traveling alone on this boat on the way to Rome. He has a couple of his friends with him. We'll cover uh, who they are. We got Aristarchus who's from uh, some of the missionary trips, the third missionary trip that Paul had taken. Uh, But we've also got this other guy named Luke. Luke is the guy who wrote the book of Luke and Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Now what's interesting is the two years that Luke doesn't show up uh, while Paul is in Caesarea under, uh, under the, um, uh, the guide of uh, Felix. Paul is nowhere to be found. So what was Paul doing for the last two years? Most historians agree that what Paul was doing, or what Luke was doing during these two years, while Paul was in prison in Caesarea, was that he was going around and he was doing uh, um, interviews with people who walked with Jesus in order to assemble his body of work that would be the book of Luke. So, those two years, as Luke jumps into the picture in one of Paul's missionary journeys. So, a lot of Acts is eyewitness accounts. Luke actually saw Paul doing these things, but there was a whole series of events that took place before Luke showed up on the scene Jesus' birth. Um, You've got to interview uh, Jesus's mom about that. You've got to interview some of the disciples who were there. So Luke is going down to Jerusalem. He's interviewing Peter. He's interviewing James, the other disciples, the brother of Jesus. He's trying to get a sense of what's, what's important, what's not. And he's organizing all of this. And that is how we get the book of Luke. So that's what Luke is doing. But that season is over. We're in, uh, He's back in Caesarea. And Luke is going to be traveling with Luke on this voyage. So now that you have a little bit of that context, let's go in and read. I'm going to do a little bit. We'll do something just a little different today. The last couple weeks, I would show a map first, and then we'd read the text. The problem is that this chapter is a little bit different in that it's really, really heavy on uh, just details of the event. And I think that if I just showed you the trip, and then we read uh, the the events of the trip, that you would kind of get lost. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to read a little bit, um, talk a little bit, then show the map so we can recap. So you can hear what's happening and then we can go to the map to kind of see where this is. All right, so that's where we're headed today. Let's go to Acts chapter 27 and we're gonna start off in verse one. It says, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So Julius is in charge of these prisoners and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, that's a city um, just kind of north, uh, It would be like kind of on the coast of like Turkey uh, over on the west coast. So this ship had come down there and it was now in the port in Caesarea. He was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia So we, there's Luke there, we put to sea and we were accompanied by Aristarchus. Now Aristarchus is a guy that we uh, saw in Acts uh, 19, 29, 20, verse 4. He's also mentioned in Philemon 24 and Colossians 4, 10. He's a traveling partner and a close friend of Paul. So he was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So he's on the trip too. So the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. And then we put out to sea from there, Sidon, and we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because of the winds, because the winds were against us. And that phrase you're gonna see about two or three more times, under the lee, uh, it is a phrase that essentially means uh, sheltered by the wind. So what they're doing is they're, they're in a boat, they're out at sea, and the wind during this season is incredibly Windy. And so what they have to do is they've got to, as they come up close to an island, they're riding close to the island to help shelter the boat from some of the wind. So when it says under the lee of Cyprus, they're riding the coast of Cyprus to help kind of um, uh, just eliminate some of those winds that are coming straight off of the ocean. So verse five says, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So now they're on a different ship that they picked up in this port city of Myra. And we sailed slowly for a number of days. And we arrived with difficulty off of Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Siloam. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of La Silla. Since much time had passed, because the trip was taking so long, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Now, what is the fast? The fast here is referring to the Day of Atonement. So he's talking about Jewish festivals. So we get a season where this is. This is In this year, the fast took place in mid to late October. So we're towards the end of the year. We're in the fall. It's end of October, beginning of November. Winter around here typically starts around the middle to beginning of November. So they're getting really close to no, ship, no sailing season. Because when winter hits, you don't want to be out on the ocean. And so this is the situation there. They're now in this port of Fair Havens and they're having to make a decision, do we keep going or do we just stop here for the winter? Verse 10 says, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, which was a harbor of Crete, same island, just a little more west, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, let's pause, because this chapter feels so much different than the book of the previous chapters of Acts. You, you see what I'm saying now? Like we got, you know, traditionally, Paul is coming in and he's saying these things or he's preaching a sermon or there's these events taking place and we're reading the miracles. And, and now we've essentially just got somebody's travel plans. Uh, has more of this kind of eyewitness feel to it. It's a little hard to follow. So let's pull up the first map so we can walk through what this looks like in relation to where they already, or where they actually are. So this is the voyage to Rome. This is just verses one through 12. They start off over here in Caesarea, just for context. This over here is the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's over here. So they start off here in Caesarea and they go up to Sidon. And then from Sidon, they head over here on the Lee of Cyprus. This is the island Cyprus. They head on the lee of Cyprus, and they they head across the open sea, and they're passing Cilicia, Pamphylia, Lycia, and they head into this port called Myra, all right? Uh, If you're not really good with geography, here's Italy, here's the boot. Everybody remembers the boot, right? This is Turkey, Greece over here. Uh, Egypt down here, this is Israel. So this is where, in in this town, this is where they pick up the new boat. So from this town, they head out and start heading up. corner around this way, down the Crete. They're heading around the Lee of Siloam, which is the corner tip of Crete here, and they come around to Fair Havens. Now their plan is that since it's winter, they they can't get up over here to Rome. So what they want to do is they at least want to get to the town of Phoenix, which is just around the corner of the island. We can at least make it there. And Phoenix is a much larger port town than Fair Havens. If we can get there, then we can at least have, you know, spend the next three months and just kind of relax through the winter and we won't have to worry about sailing. We can do that later. But what I wanna do, now that you have kind of a grasp on the geography, let's start to put our hands around the events and of what's actually happening. Because at this point, um, it's really easy to be like, okay, like, this is one of those chapters in my Bible reading in a year plan that I'm gonna skip, right? Because I'm not seeing how like any of this is helpful. Well, what I, wanted, I, want you to, what I wanna call your attention to in this is the level of detail that Luke adds to all the condition the conditions of the trip highlighting how awful this was. Okay? Now, just follow me. Luke is highlighting the fact that in on this voyage, the weather is brutal, the wind is against them. They have multiple stops in ports that they never planned to visit. This trip is taking way longer than it should have ever taken. They left at the wrong season. The season started changing on the journey, and the leadership wouldn't listen to sound advice. Paul is saying, "Uh, guys, look, this is not my first rodeo. It's not even my second or my third. I've spent many times on boats. I've traveled around this entire region, and I know that you don't travel in November. So listen to me. Let's not keep going. And we're told in around verse 11 that the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than Paul who had the experience. Now, why am I bringing these details? Because I think they're really important the way that Luke is gonna frame the conditions of this trip against Paul's attitude during the trip. Okay, this is super important. And this is not just important for this chapter, this is important for the entire Bible. Because as you're starting to grow as a believer and you start reading more and more of of the text, you're gonna come across things where you're like, man, this is just like a whole list of people's family lineage. Like skip, skip. Here's all the laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And skip, skip. Like, okay, like I can kind of, follow around like Judges, Samson, okay, I get it, David, where are some stories about characters I know? But look, if all you get is, if, if, if the only thing you do is become familiar with things that you're already familiar with in scripture, you're never gonna grow. You have to, you have to challenge yourself to see um, the, the subtext in what is actually being presented. Now, what is being presented is a terrible trip But why is this important to us? Because what we're about to see is how Paul reacts to a terrible voyage. And that is really helpful for us because most of our life could be described as a terrible voyage. (laughs) I went on a road trip with my kids. It took way longer than it should have. We spent way way more money than we should have. I'm in this dead-end job. I can't stand it. I should have left years ago, but I didn't go to school and get this college degree, so I don't feel like I can get... And so, excuses, excuses, excuses. Things are terrible. How you doing, brother? Horrible. Really? Yeah, man, no hope. Things are real bad right now. This is why this chapter is such good food for us because it gives us an understanding of how a Christian should be living and acting and responding to circumstances that are not ideal, okay? So with that in mind, let's keep going because what you're about to witness here is Paul keeping a perfect witness in the midst of being on a boat with over 200 people who are losing their minds. Does that sound like living in 2022? Yeah. So let's go to verse 13. It says, now, when the south wind blew greatly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, so they, they, they had a plan, they, had, they anticipated, okay, well, let's go to this next, this next town, we'll go right up to Phoenix, just a quick little jaunt right around the corner, not a big deal. We, uh, they weighed anchor, they pulled up anchor, they sailed along the coast of Crete, close to the shore, but guess what? Oh, man. A tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught, it could not face the wind, and they gave way to it and were driven along. So now, their ship has been pivoted completely. They were trying to travel northwest. This Northeaster hit, and now their boat is pointed south, and they're drifting out to sea. So running under the lee of a small island just off of Crete, called Cuda, we managed with difficulty to secure the the ship's boat. So the little life raft, the little side boat that goes right along the big boat, they secured that, because they don't want to lose the life raft, they pulled that up, and after they did that, after hoisting up, verse 17, they used supports to undergird the ship. So they're tying ropes around the ship to literally hold the ship together. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Now some translations might have uh, anchor or sail, but that Greek word is literally transworded as gear. It's a word that means like an object or an instrument or a gear. So we're not really sure what that was. It probably was the sail because if you're being carried out to sea, best thing to do is lower the sail so you're not... In Antarctica, right? Like, let's let's stop letting the wind carry us away. Let's lower it and let's just kind of drift and see where we end up. So, verse eighteen: since we were violently storm tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Uh oh! Now they're throwing things overboard. They're trying to lighten the load. They're trying to get rid of cargo. On the third day, verse nineteen, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 20, when neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Let's pull up the second map so we can see where they're headed. So the blue line is the first ship. The purple line is where they go to the second ship. Some of you are colorblind. It's like, that's not purple. Wait a second, hold on. It's blue and that's purple. The next one from here, from Fairhaven, is this is yellow. So you see this little hook here? Their goal was to just get around the corner to Phoenix. And all of a sudden, this massive Northeaster blew off of the coast and it pointed them out to sea and they start wandering out this way. So this is where we are in this. And what we're witnessing is circumstances getting worse and worse and worse. They almost lost their life raft. And what are the people on the boat starting to do? Toss everything overboard. They're tossing over cargo, they're tossing over tackle and they're tossing over hope. We're told in verse 20 that all hope of our being saved was abandoned. It wasn't just the cargo and the tackle that they threw overboard. This group of men and women over, threw over the corner of the ship all of their hope. Now, I said a moment ago why these details are important, because this picture of what's happening can be a picture of what's going on in your life, but even bigger than that, it's a picture of what's going on in our world right now. Now, on a small scale, this may be happening in your home, this may be happening to your life, you may be going through a crisis right now, but on the, on the large scale of the thing that is the earth, there is crisis after crisis after crisis. Every Second, there's a new crisis that needs to be addressed. There's people ignoring sound reason, there's people ignoring wise counsel, and there's no shortage of people tossing things overboard. They're tossing their convictions, they're tossing things that we've been doing as a society for thousands of years, they're tossing that stuff overboard, we're redefining stuff, we're tossing truth overboard, we're tossing hope overboard. But in the midst of this little sliver of what it looks like to live in this world on this voyage on this boat, you've got a Christian. You've actually got a couple Christians, but the one we're looking at because Luke draws our attention to is Paul. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, in the midst of terrible circumstances, in the midst of a world that is falling apart, in the midst of people on this voyage of life who are constantly tossing convictions overboard, tossing hope overboard, have they, like we're just going to toss everything overboard. and We're going to start over because we've lost all sense of hope. What does the Christian on this voyage do? What does Paul say? How does he conduct himself? Because what he does is a good case study for how we are supposed to be living our lives today. And just a spoiler alert, it's not to join in the party of throwing things overboard. It's not to join in the panic It's not to run around like chicken little, like the sky is falling, like a hair is on fire, and to freak out at every new crisis or new bad weather, to freak out about anything that's coming your way that you didn't anticipate, that this whole thing that you call life is taking way longer, you're not as mature as you thought you, you thought you'd be farther along than you were at this point in life. Panic does not set in to our model that we see as a believer. What does he do in a world that's losing hope? Let's go to verse 21. It says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Okay, so the Christian stands up and says, I told you so. (laughs) No. That's not what he's doing. Now, some of you are like, I don't know. It kind of seems like what he's doing. So that's what I do on Facebook. I just remind everyone they should have listened to me. That's, he's, not, he's not giving and I told you so. He's establishing his credibility that what he said would happen has now happened. So now you should listen to what I'm going to say will happen. Do you you follow me? God does this all throughout the Old Testament when he speaks to the prophets. Why should you listen to a prophet? Because the prophet is the one speaking on God's behalf and God is the only one who knows what's going to happen. A lot of us think we know what's gonna happen, but as we saw in the book of Isaiah, the challenge that God kept giving to his people is, trust me, because I'm the only one who knows the future. I can tell you what's gonna happen, so just trust me. These other gods you keep serving, these little idols that you form in your own image, they can't tell the future. They don't know what's coming next, but I do. So trust me. Paul is saying, I serve a God who knows what's coming next, so follow me. I told you this was gonna happen, it happened, so let me tell you something else is gonna happen, trust me this time. That's where he's going with this. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart. Oh, that's fascinating. So he's not saying I told you so. He's saying, hey, the thing I said before came true, so let me tell you the next thing that's going to come true. Take heart because there will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. Well, Paul, how do you know? Well, I know the last thing that was going to happen, and it happened, so trust me on this one. No one's going to die. Well, Paul, how do you know? Verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul, because you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. (laughs) What is he saying? Guys, it's gonna get worse, but trust me, no one's going to die. So what does the Christian do in the midst of an entire voyage filled with people who are panicking and throwing everything that they have known and planned for, all their hope, their dreams, they're tossing it overboard. What is Paul doing? He's saying, have hope. Maybe you tossed the hope that you previously had overboard, the hope that you said, oh man, um, if, I, if I structure my family this way and I, I stay at this job long enough, I'll, I'll have a good retirement, and, and things are gonna be okay. You have put your hope in that plan that you have constructed, okay? And then things start transpiring, the economy tanks, things are not like you thought it was, and all of a sudden, your boss comes in and tells you no longer have a job here. Well, you have an opportunity. You can either start panicking, because your plan fell apart, or you can take your hope that you placed in that thing that's now falling apart, and place your hope in something else. And this is what Paul is telling everyone. You put your hope in the weather, in this boat, in the cargo we had, but all of that is failing now. So let me tell you about a God who told me that if you put your hope in Him, things aren't gonna fall apart. Now don't get me wrong, it's gonna get bad. We're gonna run this ship up on the reef. We will no longer be able to use this ship but you will have your lives. This is not the end of it. And man, if there was ever a message that was more um, orchestrated for this period of time, I, I don't know that I could think of one. In the midst, when, when you watch the news, when you, when you talk to just a random person on the street, when you talk to your coworkers, there is this sense of panic and darkness. Yes or no? Yeah. So what is the message for the Christian in the society or in the culture that is currently sinking? What is the message? There's hope, it's just not in what you placed it. So trust my God when he says he has the power to save you. So Paul, what's interesting here is that we see him giving hope and what we don't see him doing is Playing a victim. Now, hear me. I don't want to stray too far from this. There are victims. There are people who have been sinned against violently in some cases. And then there are some people who play the role of a victim for their entire life. And what I mean by that is they live in such a way where they they act like everything that is happening around them is out of their control and it's simply just happening to them and they just got to get through the day. That is not the worldview that Christ invites his people to come into. A Christian does not view life as just happening to them. If it had, then Paul would just be sitting on the boat in a corner being like, look, Lord, you told me I was gonna go to Rome, but like, really? Like, does it have to be this way? Seriously, like, I've been in prison for two years. All I wanna do is preach the gospel. These guys won't listen to me. We came to the shore and I told them this was gonna happen and they didn't listen to me. Nobody ever listens to me. Does this sound familiar? I'm trying to sound like your inner voice. If people just listen to me, things would be better. But nobody ever listens to me. Nobody takes me seriously. My family doesn't listen to me. Nobody at work listens to me. So I'm just gonna sit in the corner, I'm just gonna mope. That's not what Christians do. That's not what Paul is showing us. That's not what Luke is showing us that Paul is doing. Instead of having a pity party, He stands up as the only person on that boat with hope and he invites those people to share in his hope. But there is one prerequisite. You have to have hope in Jesus. And that's the issue. Most of us are living without our hope in Jesus. We call ourselves Christians and we praise Jesus that he saved us from our sin, but we are actively making plans with the, the kingdoms of this world so that they can in some way save us, give us identity, give us purpose, and give us hope. And we wonder why when these things fall apart, we can't stay balanced, we can't stay focused, we can't offer anyone the hope that comes from this text because we don't know this hope. We know the guy who's offering it, but we don't really know, we're not intimately acquainted with the hope. Because we, we say yes to Jesus, but, but we don't say yes to any of the stuff that he's offering. We don't surrender to the stuff that he's inviting us into. All we do is we say, um, yes, I'm going to wave the Jesus flag on Sunday mornings. But then as soon as we start heading home, I'm going to start gripping the steering wheel as tight as I possibly can. Because there are things happening tomorrow that are out of my control. And I don't know what I'm going to do, do about it. I'm going to freak out about it. That's how we live most of our lives. We don't really trust, which is a problem because we're supposed to be people of faith. But we're putting our faith in something other than Christ. So let's go to verse 27. It says, when the 14th night had come, and that's a lot of nights in this terrible situation. As we were being driven along the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. That's about 120 feet. So they're like dropping rope off the side of the, 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 the boat and they're trying to see, okay, like can we, can we reach bottom? Because if it's shallower as we go along, then we're eventually going to hit land. So a little farther along, they took another sounding and it was about 15 fathoms. That's just about 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the docks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. That's funny. Right? What is the one thing that people with no hope always do? They pray. What is the one thing that non-believers do when things start falling apart? All of a sudden they start praying. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the boat, uh-oh, we got a problem now, because the sailors are trying to abandon ship. If the sailors wanna get off the ship, you have got big, big problems. <laughs> so they say, hey guys, we're gonna, um, we're just gonna go out here and, and, and we're gonna drop some some anchors, and what they're actually doing is they're dropping out the life raft and they're trying to get on it. And Paul said to the centurion, as he saw what was going on, he said to the soldiers, he said, look, unless these guys, they stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldier's like, um, Well, we can't sail a boat without sailors. So they cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and they let it go. So the life raft just drifted off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you guys have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength. And not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and he began to eat. And they were all encouraged. You see that? Paul stepped out in faith and the response of the people who had no hope is they began to be encouraged because one guy had hope. And they started eating for themselves. Verse 37, we were all about 276 people on the ship. And When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat out to the sea. Now let's pause right there because what we're seeing is Paul's encouragement started to turn things around a corner. The crew had some signs that land was coming up. The sailors wanted to take the life raft, but Paul spoke up and guess what? The soldiers listened to Paul. Why? Because Paul's witness, his hope, his encouragement started to have an effect on the people on the boat. So why were the soldiers willing to listen to Paul now when they weren't willing to listen to him back in uh, um, the coastal town of Mysa? Why were they not listening to him then, but they're listening to him now? When they're in Fair Havens and he's like, hey, we shouldn't move, we shouldn't go anywhere. Like Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. Why are they listening to him now? Because he's the only guy in the boat with hope and he's establishing some credentials among the people with no hope that he has something to say that's worth listening to. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? Why is it so important for Christians to be in society? When Jesus saves you, why doesn't he just take you back to heaven? Why are we still here? Because there is a message that needs to be preached. It is a message of redemption, and it is a message of hope. And who needs to hear it? The people who are in the current, currently in the same position that you were before you responded to this message of hope. So why are we still here? We're still here because we're, in some situations, the only guys and gals on the ship saying, hey guys, like turn to Jesus. Yeah, but did you see what's happening in Ukraine? And turn to Jesus. Yeah, but did you know what my parole officer said? Turn to Jesus. No, no, but that's too simple. You just can't keep saying, turn to Jesus when there's this person who wants to take my life. No, 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 you don't understand. Don't worry about the person who has the ability to harm your flesh. Worry about the person who has the ability to harm your spirit and your flesh for all eternity. That's what you need to worry about. Put your hope in Jesus. Now, we're gonna kind of we're going to finish up here in a second, but I wanna to go to a final map to kind of understand where we are and where we're headed. So on this third map, this is where they are right around here when they start taking this sounding and they get a sense of how deep it is. And what we're about to find here in a minute is they're gonna crash land on this island called Malta. Okay, so just kind of snapshot this in your mind. We're right around here and what we're about to read is how they get over here to Malta. Let's go to verse 39. It says, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, meaning they didn't know where they were, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship right up to the shore because there's no port here. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind. they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow, the bow stuck in remaining and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. So they, they hit a reef. The front of the boat is stuck right up on this reef and the waves are crashing against the back of the boat and tearing the boat apart. And the soldier's plan was to kill all the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, why did he wish to save Paul? Because Paul was the one who had the word from the Lord that they all needed to stay alive and that they were gonna make it. He's the one who had made the impression on everybody. The centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought to land safely. So Luke is showing us in these final verses that Paul's witness, his ability to keep his Christian witness in the midst of turmoil, made such a large impact that it literally saved the lives of some of the people on the ship. It saved the lives of all the people on the ship, the 276. And then when the soldiers made the plans to kill the prisoners, his witness also impacted the soldiers in such a way that he kept the other prisoners alive. And then everything is culminated in verse 44 where it says, all were brought safely to land. For me, I'm not for you, but for me, this verse right here is like a highlighter for this entire section. Why is it a highlighter for the whole section? Because it calls our attention to the impact of one Christian in a perverse, dark culture. Okay? It calls our attention to how important it is to have Christians still here on earth faithfully preaching the word of God and living out the life Christ has called us to live. We need Christians in the classroom. We need Christians in um, uh, writing uh, books. We need Christians uh, in uh, Hollywood. We need Christians in politics. We need Christians in the news. We need people who have the ability to stand up and speak hope to a culture that has none. All right, now if if you're sitting back, you're like, "Mm, I don't know, you kinda, seems like you might be reading a little bit into this. Is that found anywhere else in scripture? Go to Matthew chapter five, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house in the same way. You understand that? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Not just your faith, your faith that produces good works and they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I found this quote this week while I was preparing for this message. It's from a commentary called the New International Commentary. It's written by a guy named F.F. Bruce back in, I think, the 80s. And he says, human society has no idea how much it owes in the mercy of God to the presence in it of righteous men and women. Do you remember the conversation between God... And this guy, about a town that was so filled with wickedness, God said, you know what? Even though this town is so filled with wickedness, I'll spare this town if there's 50 righteous people in it. This chapter, Acts 27, stands out as a reminder that Christians can and should be actively impacting the world that we live in. Because on most boats, we are the only one carrying a message of hope. Where you work, you have a responsibility to share the message that God has placed on the inside of you in the same way that God yanked up the prophets of old in Israel and put a word in their mouth and it was like a fire shot up in their bones and they couldn't help but speak that message out. We should in a similar way be speaking out to a dying world. This, th- this is not all there is. There is more to life than what you have been told. There is more to life, more to raising your family. There is more to work. There is more to school. There is more to politics. There is more to life. There is more to life after life than what you have been told. Let me tell you about this man named Jesus. He changed my life and he gave me a hope that I don't see in any other area in this world. Nothing promises the things that he promises. I realize it's easy to get distracted by all of the nonsense in the world. If you spend most of your day on your phone, I understand like your, your mind is just gonna be chased in a thousand different directions. And what that is is the world trying to disciple you. It's trying to get you to think in such a way that you reconcile problems, that you handle your finances and your money in a way that the world wants you to. It's it's discipling you. And if you're not careful, then you will become a disciple of this world and not a disciple of Jesus. And I understand it's easy. It's easy to get caught up in all of the drama that happens on any given day. And you may be on any kind of spectrum. Like, you're, you're, your life is like, my life is all drama. Like, you got two hours. I can, I can get started talking with how much drama I have. And then the other section is just like, man, how much drama you got in your life? Not much. A couple things are pretty a big deal, but that's about it. It doesn't matter where you fall. There is always this temptation that whether there's a lot of drama or a little drama, that drama can rule your life. And if you imagine Paul sitting on this boat, there are plenty of things for him to sit and to to ponder. (laughs) The wind is pretty bad, and all you're doing is focusing on the wind. No one will listen to me, and that's all you're focusing in on. Man, we should have stayed at that last port. We made a bad choice, and now we're in a worse decision, a worse predicament. You can spend most of your day contemplating the should haves or the could haves or you can make a decision to be like Paul on a boat filled with people with no hope and start offering the hope that Christ has offered you. That, to me, is the message of Acts 27. So what I want for us today is to grab hold of that message as tightly as you can. Let it fill you with hope so that you can start filling other people with hope. Because if there was one thing that this world desperately needs right now, it is the hope that Jesus will return, that he will seek and save, and that he will judge unrighteousness. Amen?